sitting here at the Conservatory of Music in Toronto with Barry Schiffman, who is the Associate Dean of the Glenn Gould School of Music, as well as many other things. You wear a lot of different hats. <laughs> um, all in music. Is there anything that you do that isn't music related? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I like to cook, but I can't say that I do that at any uh, exceptional <laughs> level. Um, so basically my life is uh, my family. Uh, I have two beautiful kids and my wife, and we live in Toronto, and um, my work here, um, and my work in music elsewhere. So I work at the Royal Conservatory, as you mentioned, the Glengold School, which is a, you know, a privileged uh, position for anybody because the school is um, 130 of the finest, young, focused classical musicians um, in their generation, all hoping to be uh, exceptional classical performers. So, right. so to be in that environment is great. And then I work in the, uh, what's called the Taylor Academy, which is the, the prep division. So 100 amazing young tykes that um, are ages 9 to 18 and are involved in music in a way that one might think of a young gymnast, you know, spending hours and hours and uh, an unthinkable amount of time mm-hmm. and, and operating and performing at a level that is astonishing when you, when you witness it. But this is also the level that you performed at when you were growing up and you went into, you became a musician as, as the second violinist for the St. Lawrence Quartet. Well, yeah, I mean, I, sure. I was, um, I was incredibly focused um, as a young person and I, I benefited from an environment here at the Royal Conservatory as a student um, in that there were a number of us that were... Um, you know, insanely committed and just in love with uh, with the art form at a very, very young age. And I think it's, um, you know, you you look at a young performer and and it sort of defies reason. How are they doing that? And and when I think back though to my my memories of of being that young person and performing that music and reacting to that music, it's mo- it was more visceral as a young person than it is now. Can we go back to that? Like, when did you first pick up the, the violin? My, my dad um, was an amateur violinist, and um, so he, uh, he started me uh, when I was six. And at that point, did you have any appreciation for music? A little. My dad played a little bit at home. Um, my uh, older sisters played a little bit of piano. Um, but I think through adversity, I had a, 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 an advantage. And my dad was... Um, was ill as a when I was a child growing up, so he was at home, mm-hmm. and the result was um, when he decided to start me on violin, rather than having a lesson a week that most young kids would have if if they're even studying privately, I had a lesson a day, right. or two lessons a day, and so my rate of progress was really quick, and the result was that I was quickly playing real music and was quite good at it so that the you know the positive feedback was was quick and and you're yeah you're the, the being good at something as a young person in and of itself is such a, a motivator mm-hmm. I think that came first you know pleasing dad being really good at something being better than your sister soon being better than your dad and then later on maybe I, you know my first memories are sort of Beethoven's spring sonata one of the most beautiful, you know, you don't have to know anything about classical music, you hear the piece, you just kind of go, ah. Oh. Right. And I remember that feeling. I absolutely remember what the physical reaction was to hearing and playing that piece. And I have the same, um, you know, I have that same reaction now when I hear it. Although I, I doubt it, 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 it's as strong today as it was as a young person. And, and how old were you when you realized I was that? Appreciation? Oh, okay. So yeah. in two years. Yeah. Because I always wonder about, you know, young kids, and, and we've been privileged through you to work with a lot of young kids who are just phenomenally talented. And it's just, for somebody who has no talent like myself, it's unbelievable. But to see, one, the maturity that most of these kids have, but the, the, the technical side and also just the appreciation. And, and at a very young age, you get the impression that they're, you know, they're not just doing it because they're doing it for their parents. I mean, there's passion, and I guess they would have to have that. But how quickly did it did it become something of passion for you as opposed to something you did for your dad? Pretty quickly. By the time I was eight, nine, it was absolutely a, a passion. 
Wow. And, and uh, involved hours a day and lots of listening. And, um, but incredibly, uh, incredibly fun. I mean, it, it's a, it was a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But I remember, you know, mentioning that Beethoven Springsteen. I remember that learning my violin part and then having the opportunity for the first time to actually sit down and hear the other part. Mm. You know, it's a sonata for violin and piano. And suddenly the, uh, the, the music underneath the violin part, it was so fun. We got to the end of the movement. I just wanted to play it again. Like it was, it was this incredible feeling to, to have those harmonic, that harmonic support and that transfer of line from my part to the piano part. I, I really remember reacting to that almost instantly and, and just you know, being so, so enamored. And I think, you know, it, it influences what we, what I do here. Um, mm -hmm. We, we spend a lot of uh, effort trying to get our young musicians to make music with their colleagues and to work with um, collaborative pianists so that the, the music making, especially on those single line instruments, violin, viola, cello, wind instruments, that's a very odd existence. You go into a room by yourself and you're practicing a single line. Mm -hmm. Or at least a pianist is, you know, dealing with harmony and melody all the time. Uh, violin, it's, it, it can be a kind of lonely, lonely existence on the <laughs> one line. But, okay, so at eight you start to appreciate music. Yeah. And by 15 you're playing with the Toronto, you, you debuted with the Toronto yeah. Symphony Orchestra. Well, I guess a lot went on between those two, but what was that like to get to, to be 15 and playing with... Oh, yeah. Well, I remember I, that that summer. Um, I remember the entire summer was just extraordinary because what happened then um, was that the Toronto Symphony and, and um, uh, under the conductor Andrew Davis at the time invited a number of young musicians to make their debut with concertos um, in in uh, the Ontario Place Forum. Remember they had the oh yeah, you know, and so the thousands of people listening and. Um, and so we worked towards this date for uh, four or five months, and we were just all so excited about this opportunity uh, of walking out and having this world-class orchestra as your backup band was just... And in this environment of, you know, thousands of people mm -hmm. in this outdoor environment where everybody was... I didn't realize it at the time, but it's, it's your perfect audience. Everybody's there because they want to be there in a good mood. It's summertime, you know, they're, they're down at the water all day. This is their time to kick back and just take it in. And uh, it was an amazing environment to, to make a, a debut. You know, when you, when you finished, the, um, the, the reaction from the, the audience was, was more akin to a baseball game, <laughs> like, to have that many people. Right. It was, it was fantastic. So at the, when you achieved that at the age of 15, do you think, oh, my God, what are, what are we going to do next? <laughs> no, you got to remember that. So we all, no, we all, a lot of us um, benefited from uh, teachers from the old world. There was a huge am amount of um, Russian emigration to Toronto, right, in the 70s. A lot of those, um, um, a lot of the Russians that came over were exceptional musicians and, and brought with them a tradition of discipline and striving for excellence that came from the Soviet um, world and was something we had never seen. But once you had a Russian teacher and you were good, you were based, I mean, my address said North York, but half of my life I was at St. Petersburg Conservatory. Hmm. You know, it was really like, it was, so that concert ended, you have a meeting a couple of days later with your Russian teacher and it's immediately set the next goal. And so it, we lived in, a number of us kind of, as I say, had, had our feet in two different cultures. It was a, an amazing uh, experience. You know, if you read David Bezmosgist's um, wonderful Russian-Canadian writer, his, um, his book, Natasha, which was a, his collection of short stories, had a huge success. It kind of touches upon what that uh, world of Russian immigration was in Toronto. Um, it wasn't about assimilation. It was about a number of people creating, bringing with them their traditions and just sharing them in such a way that we all 
became part of it. It was fantastic. Hmm. Did you ever resent it? I mean, I just, I can't, I don't know how at the age of 15 or younger mm -hmm. and, and you're working four to six hours, yeah. maybe more a day yeah. working on your music sure. um, and probably giving up your chance to become a professional hockey player or whatever. I mean, did you ever have that resentment or was it you just focused and this is all I want to do, so... You know, I think I was lucky. I think I would have had resentment had I not been successful in music. And I, I think the being successful um, helped overcome what, what could have been resentment. So, and that's, that has to do with talent but also has to do with luck and opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I had a great group of friends who we were all doing similar things. Um, and I didn't feel that I was um, being deprived of other experiences. I felt that I was really having opportunities that other people didn't have. Um, I still had a good group of friends that weren't in music, but um, yeah, Friday nights were not spent at the movies with those friends. It was really, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, it was much more involved with, with my group of, of, of friends that were down here at the conservatory. When did you know that you were good? Oh, I don't know. You know, I don't even. I, that's a whole. That's a. That's a whole other thing because the, there's so much of our our time is spent um, being self-critical. Right. And so I don't think we ever really admit to ourselves that we're we're good um, overall. I think when I was in university. Um, I did become aware there were some things that I could do better than others. There were definitely lots of things that I could do not as well. But I think I was, I was healthily aware um, of what, what some of my strengths were and I used them. And I've definitely seen where colleagues of mine and students of mine um, don't shine a spotlight on their strengths, focus entirely on their weaknesses and uh, and that's, you know, I think that's awful. There's a great um, uh, friend of mine, Dennis, brought wonderful cellist. And when he was teaching at the Banff Center uh, a couple of years back, he, he talked about his great teacher, uh, Gregor Piatogorsky, the great, you know, he's like the Yasha Heifetz of cello, the unbelievable figure. And, uh, um, and he played a tape of, of this old Russian voice of, of Piatogorsky, which basically speaks to the fact that, you know, any idiot can identify their weaknesses, but it takes a mighty genius, as he says, to identify their strengths and to celebrate them. Hmm. So I try to share that with my, my students. Um, know what you're good at. Always remember that. Keep it in your pocket and, and let that be a kind of source of, of strength that you bring to your, your weaker areas. And God knows we all have lots of those. When did you decide that music was going to be part of your career? I mean, how young were you that you thought? Young, young. I, I never really seriously thought of doing anything else professionally. Um, I went to university when I was very young. I, I um, started at University of Toronto when I was 16. I left high school a little earlier than others. So already I was um, on this kind of professional track. Um, but I also, um, through my own personal situation, and there wasn't much money in our family growing up, and my dad was ill, and uh, my parents split. So it was very clear to me that uh, I had to be successful at something just for survival, mm -hmm. and music was it. And so it never was, there was never a question, oh, I'm going to stop music and go do a law degree. I, you uh, know, that's what I find with great musicians. There is no question, and it's yeah. not, and often it's not about money either. No. but it's just no. This it surely is isn't about money. In fact, it's funny you mention about money because I, I really had no money um, for a long time. Like through school, then we formed the St. Lawrence Quartet. We had even less money. Um, we moved to New York. We had just enough money to barely scrape together rent in a kind of shared living. You know, I, at some point during my time with the St. Lawrence Quartet, then I started to think, hmm. This is getting. I'm getting a bit tired of not having any, uh, you know, any money and, and having a, knowing what you know that I'm going to be actually pay my rent in, mm -hmm. in six months. And I was at the point personally where I was probably ready to consider leaving the group, 
and we just got lucky. I mean, we got unbelievably lucky. We found out somebody let us know about a job at Stanford University. They were looking for an ensemble in residence. And um, we got our application at the last second. And we never really thought seriously about being selected for that. And we, we made the shortlist and we got this job. And suddenly, suddenly, we were in an environment of unbelievable wealth, not just not personally, but mm -hmm. at Stanford University with incredible support, incredible students, incredible people. I mean, we, we moved down there in 1999. And you think that like we were down at Stanford University, paid as a string quartet while the entire dot-com industry grew and, and you know, exploded. And, and suddenly we had the university paying regular checks and we had you know insurance and pension money it was like it it felt uncomfortable almost in a way like it was kind of perverse like what what we were doing the same thing we're just rehearsing Beethoven quartets but wow somebody's actually supporting this and I I um, I feel uh, responsible to try to create you know I don't think we can we can't replicate Stanford University's wealth but the idea of of post-secondary institutions investing in artists on campus mm -hmm. is not something that is really um, developed terribly well in Canada compared to what happens in the in down south. Right. But when you were, when you decided that you wanted to pursue music, did you have any idea what that meant, like I uh, as a career and also financially what could be? Because I, I think a lot of people me included, would automatically assume that classical musicians or string quartets make a lot of money. Uh, but, but I'm sure they struggle just yeah. as much as like jazz that. musicians yeah. and yeah. whatever. Yeah. But it's a different path, though, because I don't know if you could just have string quartets get together and try to get gigs and whatever without going through a, sort, a certain formality of the education system. Yeah, well, I think it, you know, the thing about string quartet playing um, is that it takes so bloody long till you're good. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's one thing to, to, to read music with three, three other friends and, you know, it's fine. But to actually, the level, to actually take it to the level that is for the, you know, the, the professional concert stage, the, the level of playing today is so incredibly high. And, be, and with recording as well, that created this kind of artificial sense of perfection with, you know, it, you can do incredible things with digital editing. It, it just raised, so... Um, yeah, it definitely wasn't about money for a long time because you're just rehearsing and, and trying to get good. But did you have goals to say, this is what I want to do when... Our goals were never career goals. It's so, I know that sounds crazy. Our goals were, we wanted to play the WC Quartet really well. And then ne what's the next piece? Well, we should really, we haven't, we haven't played, you know, the late string quartets of Beethoven's. We wanted, you know, it was just about the music. Um, and really later did, did, did any kind of strategy come into career and even then it was, it was really, you know, we didn't have any real gift when it came to strategizing career. We had luck. We got lucky with a gig at Stanford. We had incredible support from nonprofit management companies um, in the U.S. that luckily took care of us because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. I mean, we were we're incredibly naive. I remember we, we got invited to play at the White House. I'll never forget this. You know, being Canadian, as we were in the group, we lived in the States. We just assumed this was a background music gig. We thought, oh, you know, the, you know Bill Clinton just got elected and they're having a garden party and they want string quartet to play in the garden. And yeah, we're not interested. So we told our manager, no, no, we don't, we're not interested in that. Luckily, our management just completely ignored us um, and accepted the invitation, which was not a background gig, it was a concert for President Clinton and Hillary and Al Gore, and it was a special concert honoring the recipients of the National Medal of Arts, the highest award in, in, in the arts in America. It was a big deal. Wow. And, uh, but I, 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 I tell you that story to illustrate just how bad we were. I mean, we tried to turn that gig down. <laughs> <laughs> but this is not that unusual in the world of music. I think musicians work so much on yeah, the art, that the business side of it. Yeah, I think so. And I think in the classical music, there's also um, 
although I think it's changing, there is a kind of, it was almost cool to put down colleagues that were really slick and were really strategic in their careers and really, you know, yeah, but they're not that good. Like, or, it was almost cool to not be interested in that. That became less cool when you couldn't pay your rent. So mm -hmm. then, you know, we got publicists and we tried to, to maximize uh, opportunity for, the, for, for us. And I think we did, in the, in the paradigm of string quartet world, we did really well. Is that still the reality for string quartets? Like the, the, the idea would be that they would get some sort of residency and hopefully that's what pays them as opposed to being able to make money playing gigs? Right, exactly. I think um, if you look at the very successful quartets, um, the ones that have really done well, that have had sustainable careers, have had um, association with a university. And so they have their, their, their stability, they have their support, and the concerts, they're not doing just to make money. Mm -hmm. They're doing the, you know, I, we probably made 70% of our income from the university and 30% from concerts. Did, did your attitude towards music change when you had that residency or that support from Stanford? I hope not. I, I think we were afraid of becoming lazy. Mm -hmm. I think we, and we spoke openly about that. Um, and you can become lazy with a you know, kind of a, you know, a cushy gig like that. So no, we, we, um, we were always driven. And uh, the quartet, after I left there, continued to be driven. And when I left the quartet, I continued to be driven. Um, maybe irrationally. I mean, I, you know, I, I jumped off a really fast-moving train with the St. Lawrence Quartet, and I, I started a work at the Banff Center in really administration, artistic administration, and that took me a year to figure out. Wait a second. You don't, you don't need to work seventy hours a week. Other people aren't do, like. You know, yeah. this is but tell me about that. Tell me about you're in this successful string quartet. You guys actually won the Banff yeah. String Quartet competition many years ago, um, which you are now the executive director of. Yeah. But tell me about that thought of what made you decide to quit. Like you were with them for how long? I was with them for 17 and a half years. And so we were at an incredible place um, in our career when I decided to move on, and that was one of the reasons. I think I saw, the, I didn't see tremendous growth opportunity in terms of artistic fulfillment in the quartet. I thought, well, we've done it, I've done it, we can continue doing it, we might do this with different repertoire, but I know what that's about. Mm -hmm. And what did become interesting in the quartet was not just the performance of the music, but was the conceiving of and the realization of artistic projects and what, like, not just about choosing what music you're going to play, but maybe partnering with a dance company or working with an art gallery to curate something that had connect. So it was about the, the, the creation of, of, of projects. And the, it was hard to develop too many of those in the midst of a career that had you on the road 160 days a year plus teaching. Right. So. I think the Banff Center provided an opportunity to be a catalyst for the realization of other people's projects. You know, you're constantly being pitched up by emerging artists around the world, and it was, it was fun to be able to help them realize those things. Mm -hmm. The pendulum, though, swung too far the other way, and I missed, um, I missed having enough time with the violin or the viola in hand. And, playing concerts. So when you made that decision though, you, what, what was your mindset? Were you thinking, I'm no longer a musician, I'm in the arts? Or? No, I was, see, I, I was seeing myself as a, as a musician that was just taking this other job. But as a, as a musician, I think, um, and I still continue to play, and I, uh, that's the lifeblood of, of the creative energy that I have, um, and not just creative energy, but energy. Mm -hmm. And if I don't play for uh, a week or two, I, 
I feel lethargic. I'm probably pretty unhappy. But it was probably unheard of that you wouldn't play for a week or two when you were with the string oh, quartet, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. We played. We rehearsed every day, four hours a day, and yeah. So um, it was a yeah, it was an enormous uh, change. Um, it was also a good one, in, in, just in my personal life, because we had uh, um, our first child, Lily, was born um, just right before we moved to Banff. So uh, to have a, you know, I, I've seen my my uh, my friends in the quartet deal with having children and having this career that takes them on the road for 150 plus days and so how they're still they, doing 150 yeah well, it's, wow. you know it's I think now they've started to reduce but it's a it's a huge uh, sacrifice mm -hmm. and uh, logistical nightmare to, to organize you know having children and being on the road that much it's not you know we don't have the uh, there's not enough money in in this type of music making to afford um, bringing family on the road and touring together it's not you know it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty bare bones existence on the road so that when you come home you've got money to pay your rent and so when you decide to work for Banff um, and then you realize okay I, I'm missing my music part I mean how did you balance that out how did you change that um, yeah good question I, well I in Banff it was, it was tricky because I never wanted to take I, never, I would never perform in place of um, one of the young artists, mm -hmm. so um, so I, I think I I did enough playing there, but not terribly much. Um, so th then uh, I was, you know, lucky. I have a lot of friends in the in the music world. There are a lot of chamber music festivals now that happen, and you start to get invited, and you start, you know, luckily uh, um, you get to. You know, go to Montreal Chamber Music Festival or Spoleto Festival in Charleston or San Nazaire Festival in France, and you get to make music and with incredible musicians, not musicians that you've been playing with every day for 17 years. So it's it's a different type of music making, but it's great fun. Well, I know you put in your hours, obviously, in the first first many years, but I I can't imagine with your current schedule being at the Glenville School of Music and you work with Banff and you work with Vancouver mm -hmm. and. God knows what else you do, how much time you actually get to pick up the violin. I don't and get much. And so, I don't get much. And so it's, it's inf you know. So when someone says, come and play next month in Zurich or whatever, how, what happens then? Yeah, what happens is, um, well, you, I, I mean, I'm still, I'm still playing all the time a little bit. So You're my teaching hands are, well, Yeah, right? I'm teaching. So your hands are okay, and you just make sure that you are in shape. Um, so, you know, that can mean late nights, early mornings. Um, you just, and, and I think that's something that uh, makes me um, both smile and get a bit annoyed because one thing I will say all students seem to share is the fact that they all think they're really busy. And I look at them, I'm thinking, you, you have no idea. You know, just wait. Wait till you're out of school and you're trying to practice four hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I, I and they hear the same thing from me and from others. Like, Use this time now because, yeah, you might be busy, but it's nothing compared to what you're going to have. Life just gets more and more full. Um, so yeah, it's hard to stay in shape, but... Uh, Hopefully I'm able to do that. And as a player, are you as good as you ever were? Or how does that work in terms of not playing four hours a day? Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I don't know if I'm as good as I ever was or whether I'm getting better or getting worse. Um, something that I have found, which is kind of odd, is that um, your best playing isn't always tied to when you're practicing the most. Hmm. Uh, as long as you're at a certain level of in shape. Um, sometimes, especially now as, as your bodies get older, sometimes you know, playing four or five hours a day actually doesn't necessarily feel that great in the hands. Um, but so are there things you can 
you can do now that you could never do or vice versa that you just can't do anymore that you used to be able to do? Like, can you play as fast as you were? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, you know, in the repertoire that I'm, I'm doing, I'm not playing virtual violin concertos like James Ennis, um, which requires a much higher level of being on top of your chops. Um, for the chamber music repertoire, which is not as demanding as that, um, I'm... I think I'm, I, I let others judge, but I, I think I feel, feel pretty good these days. Right. So you're still happy with your yeah, playing? Yeah. And then you spend more time, I guess, promoting young kids and helping young kids get to... It's interesting that you won the Bam String Quartet competition and then you wound up running it. You yeah. came to the conservatory and you're working at the conservatory. Yeah, that, I, it, yeah it's, it's interesting. I think, you know... Um, I have a certain um, maybe ability to um, to get some stuff done, uh, and I don't know if that's skill or maybe fearlessness or just tenacity, I guess. Um, but um, I do feel incredibly lucky to to be back in Toronto working um, in the in in this incredible environment, surrounded by these incredibly gifted young people. And with a support network of donors and administrative staff that are just incredibly committed. Tell me about how you feel about promoting these kids and seeing the many successes that come out of the school. But I mean, as as a person who's in the teaching role, what does that mean to you? And and how different is that from being that person or that musician who succeeded? Well, you know. I, when I'm prom helping to promote um, the, the young artists, um, even though I sometimes do have to focus on promoting a particular student, um, I really do think that uh, our role is through, through promoting them, you're just promoting the art form, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I try not to focus too much on the one individual because there are so many great ones mm -hmm. that we're working with. Um, but I'm trying to just help create an appetite for what it is that they're doing to create a, you know, um, concert goers. And, and, and uh, so it's a little like missionary work. You know, you go out there and you bang on the door and you, you convince people that, you know, this music will change your life. And, um, and the amazing thing is when you hear the music, it will change your life. It's, it's that gettable. It's that beautiful. It doesn't take years and years of practice to appreciate it. I get, I don't, you know, I'm kind of baffled sometimes at the um, degree to which people will go to create diagrams to explain music and uh, I'm like, shut your eyes and listen. And I think you'll get it. The more you listen, the more you get, the more you do read about it, the richer your experience may become. But there are so many pieces of music that I, I didn't have any training when I heard Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations. You don't need to have any training to react to that music. Mm -hmm. It's, you don't need any training to react to a, you know, a, great, uh, a great Leonard Cohen song, a great pop song. You just react to it, and it's the same. The, the big difference with classical music may be that is, is the size of form. And to be honest, I have a problem with that today. I mean, uh, do I like to go and sit for an hour and listen to a symphony? Most days of the week, I don't anymore. That's not the symphony's fault. That's just that life is changing so that um, these large, large, large form art forms are fighting for attention. Mm -hmm. and it, it's fast-paced out there, so... It takes a lot to turn off for three hours and go to an opera, or three and a half hours. When, when I went to this Bamstring Quartet competition, and there, were, you know, I noticed there was an age of the audience. Not that as, it, as as the competition went further, it seemed to get younger the audience, but but I was struck by the audience age, which which is really not that different from me going to a blues festival or a jazz festival because the audience age in all those yeah. are getting older and. 
Uh, certainly in those two genres, the people are concerned about that age. I don't know if I get that same impression about the classical music because some people say people just find their way to classical music at a certain point in their lives. But how do you feel about the... It's funny, you know, if you... There, there, I've, I've seen um, articles written um, about aging audience in classical music and you read them and... and uh, then when you're told that the article you're reading is actually from 1927, and you have absolutely no, like it is exactly the same in describing the New York Philharmonic's concern for their concert goers, and it's, it's, it's identical situation. So um, I don't think that, I don't, that's not a good thing, but I'm, I think what I'm pointing out is that I don't think it's changed that much. I think you're right, people do maybe find classical music later. Um, what I will say for the performers, though, and I think for the audience, for older audience members don't want to hang out with only older audience members. Mm -hmm. The audience gets better when it's mixed, and the vibe that comes off the audience is better when it's mixed, and we have to remember that the music making that comes off the stage is affected by the vibe that comes from the audience. Something, it's hard to explain what that is, what that is, what that magic is, but the performers do sense something. And, um, and we love playing for, uh, for mixed audiences. I think, you know, that's something that uh, I think the Toronto Symphony has done really well recently in that they're attracting all sorts of young people to the concerts. Now they're getting blamed that, okay, they've got lots of young people, um, but the ticket prices are, had to be discounted to achieve that result. Who cares? Mm -hmm. So you have a little less revenue, but you've got a diverse audience. What, what could be better? So, and I also think it's access. You know, I mean, if you you were talking about taking some of the students to Thorncliff School, and and you just think as a kid to mm. see classical music is not something you would normally do. You know, just giving them access is often. You know, you could just even turn on one kid to violin or. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, going, going, bringing the arts to uh, the the act of outreach. This is something we, you know, I learned from a great friend of mine in New York, Robert Capolo. When you share your message, your music, there's something incredibly powerful of bringing it to the listener. So, while it's great, you know, when busloads of kids go down to Roy Thompson Hall, get bussed in to see the Toronto Symphony, and I understand that. Mm -hmm the cost of moving an orchestra. It's a very different experience than when I bring you know, seven or eight musicians from the Glenn Gould School and we are at a public school at nine o'clock when the kids are going to the school and they're looking at us, who are these strangers with their cases and already there's a little bit of a buzz like something special is happening and they're brought into a room and you've come to them. You're in their space, um, you're in their classroom and you're bringing this music to them delivering it to them. Um, you already have them. You have a captive audience that is just a, a unique and beautiful thing. So um, Thorncliffe was a really interesting experience because that's a school that has gone through incredible change in the last 10, 15 years and now um, has uh, 47 languages spoken in the school. Um, very, very few of the students have any real connection to Western classical music. Mm -hmm. um, and the school has enormous challenges just with its size. So there's, there was actually, no, we found out through um, one of the teachers that there was no live music heard at the school the entire year. Mm -hmm. And we just thought, well, this is nuts. We gotta, we gotta go. And, um, and so we went, we brought these uh, young musicians and uh, we brought music that is maybe an easy point of entry with um, Vivaldi Spring mm -hmm. from the Four Seasons and we had the, uh, that, that piece is based on a poem about spring that Vivaldi wrote, so we, we sent the poem to the schools and at least the kids read the poem and we could demonstrate the music. Um, and we brought young performers that were not that far in an age so they could see, even if you don't get the music, you can see somebody doing something really well. But then what I think was, uh, what was totally an unbelievable experience is that uh, we invited a singer, a graduate of Glen Gould School, Miriam Khalil, to come. And Miriam was an um, immigrant to Canada when she was seven from Syria and um, speaks Arabic. And 
right before we presented this concert to these children at, at Thorncliffe, the vice principal came in and stopped us and said, so do you mind, I have 13 children that um, I'd love them to hear this presentation and uh, they've just come from Syria mm. two weeks ago. Um, they're new Canadians and these beautiful young kids came and they sat in the front row, did not speak a word of English, didn't really know what they were in for. Right. Um, some of them were clearly wearing clothes that had been given to them. Um, I mean, this was a concert that happened just last week, and you know, we're at the end of spring now, and they had, uh, you know, T-shirts with Halloween pictures. So they were special, right? Right, and uh, they looked somewhat nervous. And you think about what they might have gone through in the last year, oh, and uh, unbelievable. And Miriam looked at them, and the kids didn't know that Miriam spoke Arabic, and she just started to talk to them, hmm. and and they're eyes lit up and so she started the presentation um, that we had planned for them by singing O Canada in Arabic and they were just they, they were so full of joy um, in the act of singing this you know of course there's great message, oh, we're in Canada, we're saved. All. But actually, I think it was more, they were reacting to music. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, you know, I think of everything I've done in my professional life, um, that concert at Thorncliffe was, was an emotional highlight. I mean, to, wow. to, to, and I've, you know, it, yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, I can't think of anything that, that came close to that. It was really stunning. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And that was, you know, Life's amazing. That was because I had a conversation with somebody who taught at Thorncliffe at a dinner, New Year's Eve dinner, and she started telling me about this school and, and, and saying, yeah, we've got to get some... Um, but I, th I think it wasn't just my own... I mean, the other musicians that we brought, many of them were crying, mm -hmm. the teachers were crying, the, ki the kids were... Um, you just want to go back. So, there... Uh, and they responded so well to the music, you know. You could you could just feel it, and uh, they. You, I think if we, if we went there every week, I think we'd have a full house of listeners. And that's the lifeblood of any musicians. That's really what we want. Mm -hmm. We just want people to dig this music with us. Um, so, I there's a lot of work to do because um, if you t take a look at that one school. We played four concerts, maybe that day, or three concerts. We touched less than 5% of the school. Mm -hmm. And that's um, one school. And that's one school. So there's a lot of work, and I think there's, um, musicians have to want to do that. You have to want to kind of be missionaries and, and in, in a way and, and, and share, um, share this incredible music. But what musician wouldn't? I mean, I know that you know some might say, "Well, there's no money in it, forget it, or whatever." But I mean, reality, as, a, as somebody in classical music, I can't imagine why somebody would say, "Well, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm too busy," or whatever. Like to be rewarded, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, the way you describe it. Yeah, well, I, it's I, it's not that people don't want to do it, um, but sometimes maybe we are a little uh, we put too much infrastructure around something. Mm -hmm. We just got our cases. We made contact with the school. We had a teacher we knew there, and we went and we did it. Um, Look, I think about the years that you've been playing and the places you've probably played to the audiences you've played, and and to say that this was an uh, emotional was highlight. Yeah, this was definitely the emotional highlight. You know, I, for a number of reasons, not just because kids came from war-torn Syria and were moved. That was the front row of kids, but because I was scared going into this school. Um, because I knew that the young listeners weren't really familiar with Western classical music, and I wasn't sure whether they would react well to it, or whether they would react to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so it was fulfilling just to see that this music that I love so much was, was so easily gettable, and, and was being eaten up by these young people. Um, 
I mean, next step would be to have uh, people from the school maybe come down here and hear, hear our orchestra. So th the idea that we welcome them into our house, they welcomed us into their house. Mm -hmm. it ha music has to be the result of an organic kind of social community. We, we've lost that, um, maybe, and... Uh, we've lost it because... I think the schools provided a lot of that. Um, I think there was, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, why have we lost that? I think we're not investing in it. Right. You know, bottom line. Well, I mean, I think with everything else, I mean, there's so much to do, so many things have to be done. There's the internet, there's so many things you can watch. So everybody's distracted, so it's hard to. Yeah, everybody's distracted, and um, you're trying to justify everything. So for music to be relevant, it has to have a greater good. You have to be good at adding numbers in math class because you went to the music concert. Therefore, music should be funded in the school. Luckily for musicians, there's science that shows that, yeah, you're going to add better math class because you're involved in music. But I don't really give a damn about that. Mm -hmm. I really only care that the music sounded beautiful and you liked it. That's enough to have it in the schools. It doesn't have to make you better at math. It's kind of cool that it does, but it, it's not at all interesting to me. But at this point, I presume very few schools have music. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just disappearing. Uh, it's just disappearing, and um, it, it doesn't take much. You know, it's, not, it's not that every school needs an orchestra. Um, you can do incredible things with, without instruments, but um, there has to be an appreciation from the top level down that music is an important part of life. And once you accept that, then it's not an option to cut the funding. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, it's, that, that's incredibly uh, depressing, the, the divestment in arts in the schools. Tell me, what other music do you listen to? Yeah, I don't listen to much. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I, but I know you, you were on stage with Stevie Wonder, so right Oh, there, yeah, no, be, that, sure, that was fun. There might um, be books there, but... Yeah, no, um, I don't listen to much... I, listen, I don't listen to much music. I listen to whatever's on the, on the radio in the car that my young girls listen to. They know all the pop songs. And I, it's not that I don't like listening to music. I just... There's not much time. Right. And so... But did you ever get into other forms of music, or...? Like, Nothing ever really big. I've you know I've loved listening to to um, uh, certain jazz artists. I've loved and and I got introduced to some of that at um, at other f like festivals where I was performing. I remember once performing at Spoleto and I went to a concert night and I heard Chick Corea. I had no idea who he was. Like wow, that was really that was really something unbelievable. I should check this guy out. Right. Um, but no, I'm not, I, I don't spend much time, uh, I love, love all sorts of different types of music, but I don't spend much time listening to music outside of... Uh, Is it difficult to not be jaded about music or the business of music in the position that you're in? Or are you too positive? No, I'm positive. I don't, I'm not jaded about music. What I do find difficult is to just turn off and listen to music without trying to decide if it's good or not good. That's... Um, that's an unfortunate <laughs> byproduct of, right. of my life. Um, sometimes I just want to listen to a violinist and, and not, not really care, you know, how good or is it worth just, just be moved by it. And um, so I have to turn off that, that kind of critical well, would I do that? Is that okay? Is that the right tempo? Is did he follow the? Mm -hmm. Did it move you? You know. Um, and there are some uh, there are some incredible form performers today that uh, that I've you know I've been to concerts and I it transcends all of that. And you're just going, wow, that really was that was the real thing. And with the kids that you bring up through the Glen Gould School or the Taylor Academy. 
Are you ever blown away by them? Like, I, I, do you ever think, oh my God, this person is... All the time. All the time. And it's really fun when you see it. Um, and it happens occasionally. Uh, I can think of a couple times uh, where a student, we've invited a, you know, somebody to come in and do a, a master class, a kind of public presentation with a great artist to listen to these young kids. And a couple times where they've, they've just said, I have nothing to add, you know, just, and, and it's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, my first year, I remember this really well, um, three young girls playing a, a lovely little Dvorak trio, incredibly beautiful little piece, um, and I had uh, an exceptional violist, um, James Boyd from London, and we had a master class and they played, and it was unbelievably touching sentimental music, and exquisitely well played. And I looked over at James and he had two tears rolling down his face. Um, the kids stopped playing and he just said, don't change anything. <laughs> and the class was over, that was it. You know, <laughs> it was the oddest, I said, okay, kids, you can go. It was 7.30 at Friday night, they were supposed to be there. They all kind of sauntered out quietly and, and I totally agree with what James did that night. Huh. You know, it was an incredibly powerful message to just tell these young kids, that was great. It can be different, but it can't be better. It was really great. So my final question to you, and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, but pleasure. Music, tell me what, what it has meant to you. I don't know if you can, I mean, you, you play music, you live in music, you promote music, and, yeah. and I don't know if you can easily quantify this, but... You know, you are, for me, you're one of these people who, who I learned whatever classical music I have through you, and I just think, you know. Well, I just feel lucky. I mean, the, when you listen to a, you know, you think of, you listen to a great piece of music that's, that really affects you, you think this is the most beautiful thing you've ever heard, that scratches the surface of what it's like to play that music. So if, so that's, you know, it's, it's, if you haven't felt what it's like to, to play whatever, slow moving a Mahler symphony or, or whatever the piece is, um, it's an unbelievable feeling. Um, so I've been incredibly lucky to have that. And then the act of making music together with people that are your friends is is a unspeakable joy and that's why you'll find people that I grew up with here at the Royal Conservatory as a 10 year old as an 8 year old they're friends now and there's a, uh, it's, a it's something very very special to um, yeah to have that that ability to communicate and and feel something together on on an incredibly high and you still get to do that. Still get to do that. Amazing, huh? Yeah, lucky people. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.